The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Support for this show comes from Alive Mind Cinema, devoted to bringing you the best documentaries about enlightened consciousness, secular spirituality, and transformation. Watch a film that might change your life at AliveMindCinema.com. Last October, I attended the Parliament of World Religions in Salt Lake City, Utah. The Parliament, a modern version of the original gathering of religious leaders from around the world that took place in Chicago, Illinois in 1893, is the gathering place for the global interfaith movement. The Salt Lake City Parliament was attended by 10,000 people and featured hundreds of lectures, seminars, and cultural events. I attended the Parliament as a journalist for Spirituality and Health magazine, interviewing dozens of presenters, representatives of a wide variety of religions, some known by many and some known only to a few. We will feature some of these interviews in extended Essential Conversations podcasts. As you'll notice from the background noise, these interviews were conducted in the thick of things. Well, in fact, there was no thin of things at the Parliament. Multiple events were happening at the same time in the huge convention center venue, and despite our best efforts, finding a quiet place to talk was nearly impossible. So allow the ambient sounds to be part of the experience. Indeed, those bystanders who huddled around us as we spoke heard what you're about to hear, background noise and all. Our interviews were conducted amid the hubbub of spiritual seekers conversing with Buddhist and Catholic priests, Buddhist and Protestant ministers, rabbis, swamis, yogis, gurus, Imams, sheikhs, lay people, academics, and fellow seekers of all stripes. After a while, the sounds of spiritual seeking created a wonderful and comforting environment. There's something promising and hopeful about being surrounded by people for whom spirituality and religion are seen not as weapons of contention and war, but as vehicles of cooperation and peace. In fact, if there's one thing the Parliament offered, it was hope. We plan to share some of that hope with you in these special editions of Essential Conversations. Our first conversation today is with Phil Goldberg. Phil is a lifelong spiritual seeker and author of several important books, including Making Peace with God, Road Signs on the Spiritual Path, Living at the Heart of Paradox, and most notably, American Veda, How Indian Spirituality Changed the West. Phil was at the Parliament to talk about this last topic, the influence of Hinduism specifically on Western spirituality. I've known Phil for many years. I consider him a friend. And I mentioned in the book American Veda. So if that isn't reason enough for you to listen to this podcast, consider that he has his finger on the pulse of American spirituality and is considered one of the leading thinkers on the topic. Listen to what he has to say about not just Hinduism and American spirituality, but the revolution that's happening in American spirituality itself. We're talking with Phil Goldberg, the author of American Veda, a really 
fabulous book that looks at the impact and history of Hinduism in the United States. Phil's here at the Parliament of World Religions, and I appreciate your talking to us. It's my pleasure. So tell the listeners a little bit about the book. Uh, well, American Veda, the subtitle says what it's about. The subtitles from Emerson and the Beatles to Yoga and Meditation, How Indian Spirituality Changed the West. So it's a, it's a story that I felt needed to be told because these teachings from India have been filtering into the culture for over 200 years now and influenced many of our leading thinkers, psychologists, artists, scientists, and who in turn helped propagate these ideas uh, to the point where I think it's had a major impact on uh, spirituality in America. So in a second, I'm going to ask you to tell us what these ideas are. But I think when most people think about Eastern religion in the United States, they go Buddhism. Right. So, but you're saying... Well, they, they may think Buddhism, but they also think of all the gurus who came here. If, especially if they're old enough to remember the 60s <laughs> and the 70s. So they know Yogananda because of his famous autobiography. They know Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and the Beatles and the, the, the popularity of transcendental meditation in so the 70s. Tell us about that one, because I know people are interested. <laughs> well, that to me was one of the major turning points in this story. And, and one people always want to know more about to the, to the point where I now give presentations just about the Beatles, sometimes with live music. But um, when the Beatles uh, discovered meditation in uh, summer of 1967, the summer of love, if you recall, um, in London, and then uh, took it up and became devotees of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. It was like the Beatles were so famous, so popular, that this became uh, global news. And so overnight, everybody knew what a mantra was. Everybody knew there was something called meditation that even uh, rock stars find useful and so forth. And then a few months later, they went to India famously in, in 19, early 1968 with other th celebrities who happened to be there at the same time, like Mia Farrow. So once again, you know, this was in the, all the newspapers. Every magazine had cover stories. It was a huge thing. But the real importance of it was what came subsequently, because... So many thousands of young people did what the Beatles did. They took up meditation. And all the gurus at the time became very popular with young people. The grown-ups took notice and saw that these kids were actually changing. You know, these practices were transforming people. And a lot of them were getting off drugs and doing meditation and yoga instead. And they, that made people take notice. That led physicians and psychologists to do research on meditation to see what was happening. That Those publications, the publications of those findings, led to the mainstreaming of meditation. And so that was a huge part of the story of how these teaching went from, uh, and these methodologies went from uh, fringe populations and you know, sort of youth subculture into the mainstream to the point now where we have you know thousands of research uh, studies on it. So that's 1967 that starts but this has been happening since the yeah. 1800s because you start with Emerson. That's right. So how did 
part of the transcendentalists, I think, if I remember right, you can correct me, obviously, but they were reading German translations of, of Hindu texts? It, they were coming from the UK. There, oh, were, okay. there were German and British translators and commentators on you know, Indian religions and philosophies. And the first English translation of the Bhagavad Gita had come out and they found their way to New England, which was a sort of intellectual center of America at the time. And certain people became enamored of them in the early 19th century. And one of those people was Emerson's father. So Emerson grew up, and his aunt, very um, sort of untold story, Mary Moody Emerson, she was teaching her nephew these things and giving him books and journal articles to read. So by the time Emerson was in uh, at Harvard, he was absorbing Eastern ideas, and they had a, a huge influence on his subsequent philosophy and his spirituality. And would you go writings. so far as to say that transcendentalism, as Emerson articulated it, it was sort of a New England Hinduism? You could say that, and people have said that, but it, it's also mixed with. Uh, European idealism and romantic philosophy, and but even some of those philosophers were in, influenced by the Eastern texts. So there's this mix of, of sort of Western metaphysics and philosophy and Eastern and his own insights. And one of the things you see in Emerson and to some extent Thoreau is is uh, very Eastern ideas, very Hindu ideas articulated in you know Western idiom. And a lot of people reading Emerson Thoreau right now don't realize they're getting some of that. They think they're reading Emerson's philosophy, and they are, but it's deeply influenced by, by the East. What do you think attracted them, I mean, then and now maybe, but we could say, but what, what's the attraction? You know, I sometimes think of Emerson as the founding father of spiritual but not religious. Okay. Because, you know, he was a minister. And he just sort of said, okay, and he, what he said was he defrocked himself. No, he left the, uh, <clears throat> he was a, 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 a Unitarian. Yeah, but Unitarians were different then than what we think of right, now, but right. it was main, very mainstream. And they were basically Christians who denied the Trinity. That's right. And, and Harvard Divinity School was a Unitarian school. And he gave a famous address at Harvard Divinity School essentially telling people, hey, you don't, we don't really need clergy. You know, we need direct experience of divinity. And he presumably was having such direct experiences, and some scholars think that the Hindu, te <clears throat> Hindu texts gave him language and intellectual framework for what he was experiencing in his walks in the woods, this sense of unity with uh, the divine. So can we, <clears throat> and we're obviously mixing ages here, but so he said, you know, we don't need clergy. That's a bit of an well, no, exaggeration. Okay, but well, it's, okay, fine. <laughs> but but going with what you said, uh, could you say today that we or we don't need gurus, and yet people are flocking to gurus here at the parliament? They uh, are really. It's very oh, guru oh gurus in the sense of teachers and yeah, authorities. Yeah, of all looking kinds. at your authorities. Right? Yeah. So, well, you know, I, it's a it's a paradoxical thing, isn't it? Because in a sense, you're a guru, you're an ordained rabbi. People look to you and your books uh, for authoritative guidance. Mistakenly. 
<laughs> but they shouldn't. Maybe not. But but you're the kind of guru who will say you've got to go beyond gurus. That right. ultimately you are your own guru. Right. But at the same time, we all need help. We all need guidance. Some people know things more than we do. And teachers make sense. Teachers. Right. And and in a, in its most fundamental form, a guru is a teacher. Now there there's the guru disciple relationship in traditional Hinduism and in Buddhism. Where it's more than that, it's a, a form of devotion and surrender that you know most of us as Americans are not inclined to do, and and most gurus don't necessarily require that of people. They're happy to just be teachers and mentors and whatever, and that's probably the model most of us are comfortable with. So what I'm thinking of is Eric Fromm's book, Escape from Freedom. Mm. I remember and, that. <clears throat> right, it's back in the 60s, I guess, right. early 70s. But his book is, or maybe even earlier, but his book, Escape from Freedom, uh, as I remember it, and, and as I'm using it in this conversation, is that people don't want to be their own guru. And, and I'm not even sure that's exactly what I have in mind, because that's, that's just, it could be just pure egoic nonsense. Maybe reality is your guru is better. But, but people want uh, the freedom and responsibility that comes from not having an authority is so frightening to so many yeah, of us that yeah. we race away from freedom, we run away from freedom, and we glom on to some teacher, book, authority, tradition, and we become, that's our shield against you know, yeah. the truth. And there are certainly people like that. And then there are people, in my experience, what happens is in the early stages of the spiritual quest, people might find a guru, a teacher, a teaching, and that's it. And if they truly mature and the teaching is authentic, they'll eventually realize that that too has limitations and there's more to learn. There's other teachers, there's other teachings, and they become more independent. There's a saying in the Hindu tradition that at the, uh, when a sapling is young, you build a fence around it to protect it. But after it's firm and grown, you can remove the fence. And, and the, the so many of us need the enclosure of, of a you know, teaching tradition, institution, whatever. Of course, it has its dangers. You know, the Tibetans say that a guru is like a fire. If you don't get close enough, you don't get warm. If you get too close, you can get burned. So we all have to find our, our place from, you know. From so we're taping this at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Salt Lake City. You've been wandering around. You've been going to different sessions. You've been presenting yourself you know we're, we're sitting now in the vendors area where there's all these different teachers <coughs> promoting their teachings and, and some some people here are saying they're god uh, some people <laughs> are saying you know they they've got the true buddhism and all the other buddhist vendors are wrong and you know so what what do you make of this i try to ignore it <laughs> <laughs> you know to be perfectly honest a lot of it is entertainment a lot of it is infuriating, and a lot of it is interesting, you know, and, and everybody finds its own thing. The thing that uh, is, there's such a phenomenal diversity here, and the spirit and the feeling of it all is, is wonderful. The thing that I, and, and the major sessions, um, because it's centered around climate change and issues of justice and everything. So, you know, there's a lot, there's a strong social responsibility element to this parliament, which I completely respect and, and think is wonderful. But I sometimes wonder, 
if when I hear people give standing ovations to things people say, is like, we is it just you know inspiring platitudes? Are we really getting? Is there a vertical dimension to this, other than a, a call to you know do things differently and what what's going to come of it? And I don't know the answer to that. And I hate to be cynical, but I sometimes wonder if uh, you know, there's this element of personal transformation. Um, you're, you're doing this for a magazine called Spirituality and Health, not Religion and Health. Right. And there's a reason for that. And, and it's that spiritual dimension of depth and personal transformation that I sometimes find is missing in these interfaith, interreligious gatherings. Because they're focused on religion. They're fo- yeah, and everybody's in their silo, and there's the Hindus and the Jews and the Buddhists and the Christians. And I find those categories sometimes uh, insufficient to be, to be uh, polite. So I've been wandering around here for a few days, and almost everyone I've spoken with has said, well, you know, it's the golden rule. Yes. And you know, my new book is on the golden rule, and, I, and I'm not going to say, oh, it's the golden rule. It's more complicated than that. But that's what they're telling you. Oh, it's just the golden rule. So then my comeback is always, well, then why do we need the robes and the beads and the gongs <laughs> and the, you know, and why are we just fighting over clothing differences? Is, it, <laughs> is this a matter of, of fashion debates? If it's all the golden rule, then why do we need all the rest of this? Well, the, other, the question that I raise is, if it's all the golden rule, then what's the last 2,000 years been like? You know, we've had the golden rule, right. and they make a big deal of it being in every, one version of it or another being in every tradition. Well, if that's all it was, the world wouldn't be the mess that it is, right. and people wouldn't be killing each other. So my question is, okay, the golden rule. How do you get human beings to behave in accord with the golden rule, asking them to, imploring them to, hasn't worked that well. You know, it goes on every day in some church or synagogue or temple everywhere, and it just doesn't. Even my mother, the atheist, would tell me the golden rule, you know, not knowing where it came from, of course, as if, you know, she thought it up. (laughs) How do we know she didn't? Maybe she did. But but then that's where the notion of, you know, spiritual transformation comes in because I'm sure the jails are filled with people who are raised on the golden rule. This notion of these uplifting platitudes like the golden rule and, and other things that I hear people say, it's almost as if, and again, I don't want to be cynical either, but it's, it's so easy to fall into that <laughs> trap. It's almost as if this is just a feel-good gathering. I hope it's more than that. And I know there's people wanting to do important work and make an impact on social justice and climate change and so forth and I hope they do and I I hope I can be part of that but it takes you know legs on the ground as well as good intentions I always think you know uh, with respect to things like there's a a lot of this uh, this weekend this week is, is about compassion Karen Armstrong is here, and she's wonderful and terrific. And yes, we all need more compassion in the world. But that's like saying we should all behave according to the golden rule. Compassion is a quality that you can cultivate, and some people have it, and we all have it more at some times than others. So how do we cultivate the capacity for compassion 
is, is often a missing ingredient in it. It's all just let's be compassionate and let's sign a document saying that we intend to be. And yeah, that's I mean, where spiritual methodologies, you know, come in. As opposed to religious doctrine. Yeah. You're suggesting, yeah, yeah. So what's your sense? I mean, you're trying not to be cynical. We, we both said we're trying not to be cynical. I've had other people say the same thing. So what is, you know, putting your best spin on it, what, what's your sense of what the parliament is doing? I'm, well, the other side of it, aside from the um, inspirational speeches and the, uh, the, the people who are excellent speakers imploring everybody to take action, um, there is that element of there are some of the people are not just trying to inspire, they're trying to get people to act in a world that needs help from the religious communities. And that's terribly important. And to the extent people do that, it will have, I think, you know, have been a, a, an important contribution and a worthy one. And I know those efforts are being made. But the other side of it is there's, a, there's hundreds of sessions going on, and I'm learning a lot. You know, the ones I go to, if I choose correctly, <laughs> I can come away having learned something independent of you know, climate change and social justice that, you know, can advance my knowledge and my uh, own spiritual path. And the other piece of it that is probably true of almost every conference I've ever attended is this the informal contacts people make and the networking. Right, that to me is the most important yeah, part of this. And, that's what, and you see it going on all the time over meals and in the hallways. And, and I think that is a useful thing. And you know there, are, I, I've I grew up in a multicultural New York City. There are people who have lived in their religious silos for their whole lives, and just interacting with people who are other than them, and you know who are from another country or ethnic group as well as a different religion. For many people, that is a terribly important and can be very transformative, yeah. you know. And 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 that you know is is a, a very positive outcome from these kind of gatherings. Yeah. And the diversity is extraordinary. Absolutely, I was speaking with uh, a woman from uh, a Catholic uh, theological seminary, and she was saying that a pagan woman and a Catholic priest were at her booth, and I don't know how the conversation started, but. They were just going at it. Oh, really? <laughs> and the Catholic was saying, you know, paganism, you have to stop this. And it, it, she said she just sat back and <laughs> she was in awe about the animosity that was oh, being generated. My. But but that was rare. That's exceptional. Yeah, that you know, is exceptional. Most of it's the opposite. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of respect and tolerance. Look, I, I moderated a panel. Now, obviously, it was... A, a, chosen people there so as it were uh, <laughs> you're not talking about jews no about. no but there were two of them <laughs> there were five people but it was on spiritual experience as the foundation of deepest unity amidst diversity and so we had a couple of scholars there was me mirabai star was speaking about christian mysticism we had a sufi speaking about sufi model of consciousness development and um, Dana Sawyer spoke about the perennial philosophy. Uh, Rita Sherma spoke about Hinduism and the Dharmic traditions. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, 
a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. And, and the commonality there was the, the you know, deep spiritual experience that people of all traditions experience and describe in similar ways. And, that, you know, we had a nice crowd who all got it, and it was an, a very diverse crowd. And so pe- for people to know that their sublime experience, their sense of being connected to divinity that's framed in their tradition has its parallels in other traditions that they may have thought were wrong or misguided or going to hell or whatever. You know, there's a lot of education going on. You've been listening to my interview with Phil Goldberg, the author of American Veda, How Indian Spirituality Changed the West. You can learn more about Phil's work at AmericanVeda.com. My second conversation is with Alice Baskey and Carolyn Hess, who were at the Parliament of the World's Religions representing the Baha'i faith. We met in the Baha'i hospitality room, where I found both women to be a bit reticent to talk with me. They worried that they wouldn't be able to articulate the Baha'i faith clearly enough. But as you're about to hear, they are more than qualified. Both women are articulate, intelligent, and share a love of their faith that is quite compelling. Alice Baskey, who is Navajo, is the director of the Native American Baha'i Institute. You can follow her work by following the work of the Institute, nativeamericanbaha'i.com. You can also follow Carolyn Hess on Pinterest and YouTube. Just use her name, Carolyn Hess, to find her. So I'm going to start with you, Alice, because you're also full-blood Navajo yes. woman. So. Everyone here in the parliament, there's such this, you know, our indigenous traditions, our indigenous traditions. Do you add Baha'i to your cultural, your indigenous culture? Or how do you, how do you make peace with, the, with being Navajo and Baha'i? I think one of the things about the Baha'i faith is that the, when, the more one get, reads about the Baha'i faith, and our own Navajo culture, you'll find that it goes hand in hand with the with our way of life and our culture our way of life was founded who, who knows how long ago it was because Navajo is is not written history it's recorded history and from the beginning the um, in our chants, in our sacred chants, in our sacred ceremonies, in our sacred traditions, there was the story of the, we have what they call legends and songs, and in our legends was the coming of the twins. And the twins were the Hashewan, uh, Hashewski uh, in Navajo, and uh, Monster Slayer and uh, uh, the water, uh, dragon, and they were sent by the holy people. The, the one God sent these holy people to the Navajos to preserve us, to preserve our culture, to save us as a, uh, a race of people. And uh, when these two uh, 
deities came. They were sent by God or the Creator to slay all the evil things that could affect our lives. Things like poverty. Things like you know. You can think of all the evil things that uh, afflict a society, and that's what um, um, these two twins were sent for. And、uh, they were the children of first woman and first man in our culture. And、uh, when you read about the Baha'i faith, and、uh, there is the、uh, twins in the Baha'i faith, the twins are the Bab, who is the forerunner before he was coming to announce the coming of Baha'u'llah. And Baha'u'llah is the other twin, and so、uh, when, like I said, when you understand your culture and when you read about the Baha'i faith, it goes so, hand in hand. So that's the bridge for you. Is that in the Navajo culture, you, the the twins are are, cent- are central, and then here you see the twins coming again in the Baha'i faith. Amen. So, so Carolyn, let me ask you to help us understand. Because、mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm sure many of us don't understand the, the relationship, who the Bob was, the gate, the gate. and、uh, who Baha'u'llah was, and when they were in Iran, and all of that. So give us some well, history. Some history. In 1844, the Bob declared, as prophesized, and I can't even count the number of religions. He prophe-、um, came and he announced that he was the manifestation. He was the Kaim. I am. I am the promised one. He、this、announced. Is the Bob, yes, the、yeah. Bob.、Okay. He he announced that to the religious leaders in Persia. He was put to death.、Um, uh, the history of religion, unfortunately, is paved in blood. As you, as a Jew, know, <laughs> unfortunately, and he came as the forerunner of Baha'u'llah, who is the promised one of the ages. So, did the Bob think he was it? No. He knew. he knew. He no. He said there was one was coming, who was, who was, greater than him, and yet Baha'u'llah exalted the Bab as greater than him.、Yeah. We as Baha'is believe that all the manifestations, all those who came, whether it be Moses or Jesus, they are like lamps. They're different lamps. The lamp looks different, but the flame. But the but the, the light, flame、yeah. is the same. It is the same light. That within all the religions, that all the religions are one. We are one human family. That Alice, as a Navajo,、um, Africans from Tanzania, we are all one human family. We're created from the same dust. Yeah. If, if we were going to stick with Alice's tribal theme, could, is it fair to say that Baha'i is creating maybe the first completely international tribe based on principle rather than blood? Is that am I gone too far? <laughs> I don't know. I've never thought of it. Well,、before. all right. So think about it, but you don't have to think about it right now. Then. <laughs> yeah. No. I don't want to put like, you on、like、the, the spot.、Sound. Yeah, I like the sound of that. So, but I, I mean,、I'm, we are trying to build a world based on unity, on service, that we are created not only to love God. The world is created for humanity, except for the human heart. That's God's home, and we are supposed to look at each other and see God within each other. So, just to see if I can oversimplify this, and our listeners should know I'm doing that. I'm oversimplifying. 
But in a sense, for those who come from a Christian background, the Bab is sort of like uh, John the Baptist and Baha'u'llah is like Jesus in the sense of their relationship that, that ba- John the Baptist announces mm-hmm. the coming. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, yes, except he is a manifestation of his own right. Which was not true of John the Baptist. Which Very, is not yes, the, yes. Important not distinction. Okay. Yeah. So to, to see if I can, if, if I'm, you know, getting this right, it's, uh, this is all happening in Iran. No, Persia. 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 And all the way through Persia. <laughs> and, and like Islam, which was the dominant religion then, mm-hmm. and we're talking what time period? 1800s. So like Islam in the 1800s uh, and now, there's a, a, an acceptance of prophets starting with Adam and moving you know, all the way up to Muhammad. And Muhammad is supposed to be the seal of the prophets, the last one. Uh, just like in Judaism, it says in uh, the end of Deuteronomy that Moses was the greatest of all prophets. But Baha'i says, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but Baha'i says that God never ceases gifting us with prophets and that uh, the prophet for our time is Baha'u'llah, but then if, we, if human species lasts long enough, there'll be others. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, the manifestations. God promised us from very early on that he will never leave us alone and we've proven that we can't be left alone very very well um religion is like the garment of clothing you you have a child you have a small child the child has a certain set of rules and a certain set of clothes for when they're small and as the child grows the rules change the social rules change the clothes change but it's the same father. The father still loves us. And we're at the threshold of maturity as a species. And it is a turbulent adolescence that we're going through right now. So is the implication of that that uh, the adult clothes are the Baha'i clothes? Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. so... Yeah, and it's like... And so that doesn't going to go over well with the rest of the people here, right? <laughs> you guys are wearing old clothes. Well, um, I didn't, well no, it's, um, it's not that it's old. It's, well, in some ways it is old clothes, but it doesn't mean the clothes are wrong. It doesn't mean. I still wear clothes from the 80s, hon. <laughs> <laughs> so part well, of the... I, I think another analogy is the uh, progression of uh, uh, in school. You begin at kindergarten, then you're ready for first grade, second, third. You can't go from third to 12th grade. You know, you can't leap that. You have to go through the succession of grades. And uh, I think we're at that level of graduation. uh, Okay, I mean, I I understand, you know, but... Mankind's maturity. Look at us. Look at this uh, technology. Yeah, and uh, we have superior technology, but our ethics are our still very medieval. <laughs> I know, and it's it, it isn't dependent on the technology. It's dependent on our mind and our hearts. Mm. And in the Baha'i faith, we cannot proselytize. And it's only when people like yourself, people like. Uh, our neighbor here asks questions about the Baha'i faith. Can we share that message with them? Or being here in the booth, 
you know, people walk by and say, "What is this Baha'i faith?" You know, and then right. So they, if you're asked, you'll share, but you don't you don't proselytize. No, we do. So not. let me ask you something about you know moving up the grades or, or changing you know the clothes of maturity. One of the things that Baha'u'llah did brought taught I don't know what the word is is a new understanding of the role of women mm-hmm. that the religions of his time again we're talking uh, 1800s yes. the religions of his time. I don't know if they weren't prepared for, but they weren't. He, he was a revolutionary in this in yeah. sense. So tell us something about that. Um, I mean, the, the total equality of women, Baha'u'llah proclaimed it. Um, the Bab also proclaimed it. One of his first believers was a woman named Tahereh. Um, that's her title. She's the pure, she was known as the pure one, as one of the letters of the living. And she, um, when they, she was martyred, they... They killed her. Um, basically, they buried her alive. Um, she's, her last words were, you can't stop the emancipation of women. Nope, they were not ready for this. Um, many um, in the, in the women in that fate time period, the Bob, when the Bob was martyred, it was three years before his wife was told of his death. Because even the, Baha'i, the Baha'is or Babis at that time didn't understand that women had any soul mm. because in that, yeah because the culture of because that culture women don't have own a soul women have no soul as um, the way it was at that time I can't the but person, Baha'u'llah changes all of that Baha'u'llah said no that's not it he didn't change it he just stated the facts yes yeah. okay now, one of the things that uh, Baha'u'llah taught was about humanity the whole development of humanity. He said that it's like a, a bird, two wings. One wing is man and one wing is woman. Both of them have to be developed equally in order for this bird to fly. You know, and if you do not educate the women, you know, you can't, the, the, this one wing is, is developed, but it can't fly. And in my uh, writings, it says if a family has uh, a, a son and a daughter, and you, the the family only has enough money to educate one of them, you have to educate the woman hmm. because she is the first teacher of children. Yeah, very powerful notion, right? Mm-hmm. So that the the, the I forgot now. Um, Caroline, how you put it, but the complete, it, it was egalitarian, it was, it was the emancipation of women, it was, the, yeah. but you, you had a better way of phrasing it, I <laughs> totally forgot. Now that works up until a point, right? The, the highest council, um, the members of Baha'i, the leadership at that level is men. Mm-hmm. So is there a reason why they... We, I mean, the, we were told that the reason would be manifest when it was time. Um... I mean, there's uh, theories. I love the theories of people. Like, um, one of my favorite is men mess this world up. They need to clean it up. That's one of my friends. My friend Tish. She's wonderful. But the reality is, is no, we don't know why. And but one thing that Baha'u'llah did do is he changed the concept of power. We're looking. You're looking from the top-down theory. The Universal House of Justice is the foundation. It's not a top-down. I mean, there is the flow of information, top down, but there, the foundation, 
uh, part of this religion. It's Baha'u'llah said he sees power from two classes of men, the ecclesiastical orders and the kings. And in that, and he gave it to the people, he turned the entire power, mental power. And you see that with the grassroots organizations coming up. At that same time period in the United States and Europe, unions began forming on large-scale consolidation and growth at the exact same time period as, as that. That was the moment that the kings rejected him. The kings and the rulers rejected him. Napoleon III was one of them. Hmm. And I'm sure you know a little bit about history and what happened to him. <laughs> so, yeah, so let me ask you, yeah. really on a totally different track here. Okay. Um, I don't, have you been to Haifa, Israel? Yes. yes. All right. So Haifa is uh, the where... World center. The, the world, world center. center. Yeah. And that's, uh, there's a shrine to Baha'u'llah there. Mm -hmm. uh, is he buried there? Mm -hmm. He is buried there. He's buried yeah. in Baji. In uh, Akka. In, in Akka, okay. Yeah. okay. So, Thank you. you know, if, if, if to listeners, if you haven't been there, the first thing you see when you get there is it's, you wouldn't even know it was a religious organization. It's a gardening organization. I mean, the gardens, <laughs> the gardens are phenomenal. They're like terraced down a mountain, yes. you know. And That's I, the Shrine of the Bob. The Shrine of the Bob. Okay, okay. so... I was told, I mean, I've been there many, many times. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the most powerfully attractive, you know, spiritually, it, it's like a magnet. It gets, it, you know, I, I feel this real pull to that place and to sit and meditate, you know, there. But someone told me, I mean, actually numbers of, of Baha'is uh, have told me over the years that the gardens are a kind of worship. You know what I mean? It's, it's somehow the beauty of the garden speaks to the heart of the Baha'i. Can you, I don't know if I'm on track here with that, but can you speak to that to some extent? A little bit. In Alice? that, from a Navajo's viewpoint, in, uh, in our uh, culture, every living, everything, the, the rock, the mineral kingdom, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, all have a, they're all living. They all, I was just talking to one lady yesterday, but we were talking about the, uh, the, that each living thing, each one has a uh, song, a chant, and uh, it, we relate to our relatives in that way. It's, it's, it sounds a little funny. No, Judaism has the same teaching. Yeah. And so this, all these living things speak to the heart. And the more we beautify the creation, you know, the more that uh, the living thing, the plants, the animals, are happy. And both of us, man and the the. Uh, uh, the uh, specimen, they all praise God and are happy for it. Well, you can really feel that, I think, in the gardens in, in Haifa. We're caretakers on this planet for a very short period of time. Yeah. And, I mean, we have to take care of, Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. our mother, or, or sure. the mother. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's always likened to the mother. So, we're at the Parliament of the World's Religions. The first one was 1893. Baha'u'llah's son... Was Abdul. here? Was there in, in Chicago? No, no, Grandson? No. No? Abdul Baha came in 1912. Yeah. Oh, okay. To, I thought he was at the parliament. To, okay. No, he came Because he to went to Chicago and created a beautiful 
temple in Chicago. Yes. Yes. Okay, my mistake. I thought that was connected to the to the parliament. That the, he had um, I think some of the Baha'is were involved in the parliament, but Abdul Baha was not present. Okay. Oh, my husband loves to tell the story about he. Uh, it was in Chicago, 1893. Right, 1893. The first parliament, and that was the first time that Baha'u'llah's name was mentioned in America. Wow. And again, this goes back to uh, the living, the living organisms and the, the uh, kingdoms, and and uh, he, f- I feel he feels that, you know, the rocks heard it, the concrete heard it, retained it, and that's where he first heard about the Baha'i faith. He went to the University of Chicago, and that's the first time he heard it. Wow. And that is a he, great story. He lo- uh, you know, so I believe that, you know, whenever, wherever we say the name Baha'u'llah, all the things in this creation hear it. And uh, the more reverent we are and the more uh, uh, lovingly we proclaim the faith, not in a, you know, silly Thing, but more reverent we are, mm-hmm. we it, it, the the uh, creation of God hears the message or hear, hears His name and says, "I've heard it. Thank you." Mm. So we are almost it. out of time. But I want to ask you two other questions. One very practical. Well, they're both very practical. Uh, daily practice. I know that there's a, a mantra kind of thing that you say. So tell us about that. Um, we're instructed to say Alawapa 95 times a day and do a daily obligatory prayer. We have three to choose from. There's a short, medium, and long. So translate... Uh, glorified be the all-glorious. So Allah it's being us, the all-glorious. Uh, one, of yeah. the, one of the 99 names in it. So. Uh, yeah, and um, we believe that... Um, I mean, they said that the Kaim would come and bring, um, bring the hundredth name. And that's Alawapa. Oh, okay, nice. nice. <laughs> and you say it many, 95 times. 95 and there's times. a, a mala, a bead thing beads. you use? Yeah, some, um, some people use beads, some don't. Just count. Yeah, it's, it's a counting thing. Yeah, and then, uh, it's easier to count with beads. The small, yes. The small, <laughs> medium, or longer obligatory prayer. I, I can I'm, give you the small one. I can't, don't have the other two. Memorized. Give me the small one. Um, I bear witness, oh my God that thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. I testify at this moment to my powerlessness and to thy might, to my poverty and to thy wealth. There is none other God but thee, the help and peril, the self-subsisting. You've been listening to an interview with Alice Bathke and Carolyn Hess, spokespeople for the Baha'i faith. You can follow Alice's work through her organization, Native American Baha'i Institute, and Carolyn Hess teaches Baha'i and promotes the Baha'i faith and principles on Pinterest and YouTube. I'm grateful to both of them and to Phil Goldberg for participating in this special edition of Essential Conversations. Support for Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami comes from Alive Mind Cinema, devoted to bringing you the best documentaries about enlightened consciousness, secular spirituality, and transformation. Watch a film that might change your life at AliveMindCinema.com. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit SpiritualityHealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats. 
and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Central Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.